Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Uh, I'm Finan Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today uh, we have with us Samantha Walton, who's a reader in modern literature at Bath Spa University in the UK. And she's here to present uh, her book, Everybody Needs Beauty in Search of the Nature Cure, which came out with Bloomsbury uh, this year in 2021. So we'll just give the floor to you, uh, Samantha. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Um, I, a slight announcement, which was my internet cut out twice during that introduction. It's not done that in ages, so I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it will continue to be good and not do that again. But if it does, then I, I, I quickly returned a moment ago and hopefully will quickly return again. Um, okay, so this is the book I'm going to be talking about. I haven't got slides, so I will just wave it for a moment. Um, and then I'm going to read from my screen to keep myself to time, because the problem with trying to summarise a book is that you quickly go over time. So my script will keep me to time. Um, and if my eyes look like they're zooming around the page, it's because I'm sort of reading next to, to looking at you. So forgive me. Um, yeah, so Everybody Needs Beauty in Search of the Nature Cure. Um, this book was published in the summer. Um, and I've been really writing it, researching it for oh, since around 2013, I started kind of thinking about writing a book on this theme, or kind of researching this theme. And then I started it seriously um, in 2018, 2019. Um, so I started really with the question, is nature good for you? So this is a truth that we are copiously told and sold. Modern medicine and modern psychiatry tells us that spending time outdoors improves mood, limits rumination, so limits kind of negative thinking, and can disrupt and improve cycles of stress. There is a strong qualitative evidence base for these claims, drawing from reflections of those who have been sent outdoors in kind of in controlled and experimental settings. There is a quantitative base to saliva and blood samples, monitors of heart and brain activity, and studies which track the use of antidepressants and other mental health related medicines over time. They all suggest that engagement with the outdoors and with living things change our minds and bodies for the better. Nature improves base levels of, kind of normal functioning, what we call well-being, um, and also can assist people in the management of and even the recovery from mental illness and ill health. So this evidence base has been building um, in the kind of medical space since the 1980s and has had multiple repercussions. In medicine and psychiatry, it is um, now possible to, to fund and to prescribe a number of interventions which fall outside of the more pharmaceutical model of mental ill health and its treatment. So green care, ecotherapy, and a number of other terms <clears throat> are used to characterize these interventions, which in practice range from care farming and animal assisted therapy to therapeutic gardening, forest mindfulness, or wilderness wellbeing experience. On these more formal medical encounters, so in my context in the UK at least, um, there's clear evidence that the advice to get outside has become much more widely diffuse um, as the evidence base for nature as a mental health intervention has grown. So employers advise staff to take a break and unwind outdoors as a remedy for stress. Schools try to improve kids' mental well-being by taking classrooms outside, doing more kind of outdoor education. The major mental health charities uh, like MIND and the Mental Health Foundation promote nature connection to those seeking its advice and support. 
while I, I really can't think of a single conservation or outdoor charity or even kind of nature reserve that doesn't try to tempt people to its sites to support their or, or to support their campaigns by celebrating the nature and well-being relationship. Improved mental health is seen as a good way to encourage people to visit a wetland centre or to help conserve a threatened landscape and species. So I became interested in this movement from the perspective of an environmental humanities scholar, um, also somebody who works in health humanities, who's written about histories of psychiatry um, and medicine, and as somebody who briefly worked in the policy sector when I was trying to decide whether I should be an academic or do something else. Um, and that was about the same time that the nature and wellbeing connection was becoming more important as a way of thinking about social wellbeing. Um, and uh, I was particularly working with this think tank that was trying to like mainstream environmental thought. Um, and it struck me and many others at that time and in that space as a potentially really quite radical and powerful thing to be able to do, to be able to connect human health to ecological flourishing. Um, in the UK, in the early noughties, when the, the movement really began to take off here, uh, environmental crisis was a really low priority issue in government um, and also in kind of public perception as well. Whereas health and education, um, we're just a lot more effective at pulling the anthropocentric heartstrings. If a strong case could be made for protecting nature in order to benefit the human, it might be a powerful tool to counter careless and ecologically ruinous development, as well as to contribute to social justice by ensuring everyone had a right to access nature and green space. At the same time, uh, I became interested in this movement because I realised there was a lot that was not radical about it at all. Uh, from an ecological perspective, the problem of fighting for nature through the sole lens of the human and human benefit is obviously suspect. Um, what if nature proved that some nature, like gardens and parks, benefited human mental health? So great, we'll protect that. Uh, but what if peat bogs or dragonflies had no positive effect? Would there be less interest in protecting them as well? This is the kind of critique of ecosystem services that kind of emerges um, in, in some yeah, critical spaces around this movement. Um, in terms of the human, the framing of nature and well-being impacts was often also suspect as well. Research and policy documents reporting on it often celebrate nature's impact, citing evidence that it has helped people to come off their medications or to stop therapy and to go back to work. So it doesn't take much to notice that this advice was particularly appealing to governments and starts making its way into policy um, during the UK's austerity years, um, post 2010, when our National Health Service funding was drastically and suddenly cut with mental health services particularly badly affected. Nature cures arguably appealed as a DIY therapy because they are psychiatry's cheap nature, which uh, people could find on their doorstep with no need for costly therapists, medicines, or hospitals. Uh, the take up of nature and well-being advice in business and by employers was also a pretty pointed example of how nature and well-being research quickly became appropriated by workplace productivity discourse. While the demand that people be cured by nature interventions in order for nature to have been a success, risks stigmatizing those with chronic conditions who may never be cured, you know, who may not want to come off of their medications, who may want to kind of have an ongoing relationship with a therapist, um, but who have every right to cultivate a pleasurable relationship with the living world without that relationship being framed as a failure. Uh, in a much wider sense, the explosion of a nature and wellbeing discourse at this moment kind of intrigued and also frightened me. 
Uh, we're living through a crisis of mental health, social injustice and environmental devastation, which are all terrible on their own and also absolutely entwined. The major determinants of mental illness, uh, they are, they're not disconnection from nature, they're trauma and equality, uh, meaning that rising cases of ill health have to be seen in their social aspects and connected to the psychological violence of poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia and other forms of bigotry and marginalization. Economic oppression is also at the root of so much global suffering and malaise. Most of the world lives under an economic system that concentrates wealth in the hands of a minority and denies the majority the means to live with dignity, health, or in a flourishing environment. Decades of warning about climate change have gone unheeded as economic growth and the demands of polluting industries have been put before the survival of people and the planet. How on earth could reconnecting with nature solve these problems? In the context of a sick world, nature cures can look a lot like a sticking plaster over structural problems. Um, and indeed, I first heard the metaphor of the sticking plaster referred to not in academic critical spaces, but in the words of a nature and well-being practitioner. So somebody who worked for a really small charity that's kind of main job seemed to be like trying to get anybody to fund them to do their work. Um, and also to support uh, people experiencing mental health crisis in really difficult times with you know, outdoor activities. Um, the problem that that charity was experiencing and that practitioners like her were experiencing were rooted in a grossly unequal society. Um, and though they were doing everything they could with kind of incredible compassion to support people and to help them to survive, they were also like acutely conscious that the systemic problems weren't going away. So if this sounds like a very critical opening uh, it is, um, it really is, but I needed to get to the roots of all that I found wrong with the nature cure in order to tell like a more positive and a more radical story. Uh, in Everybody Needs Beauty, I set out in search of healing nature or stories about healing nature, which found a balance between social and ecological justice, which celebrated all that is personally transformative, pleasurable and empowering about encountering the more than human, whilst also exploring uh, what these encounters might give back to the living world in terms of sustainability, changed attitudes and behaviours and so on. Um, and also how we can kind of place the individual's experience in the wider and essential context of social and environmental justice. So I'm a literary scholar. Um, so my research obviously began with books and with cultural history. I drew from romanticism and transcendentalism, the nature worshipping movements which have so deeply shaped European and North American understandings of what happens to the mind and the self in nature, um, and which are so responsible for transforming the way that we approach and value forests, and mountains, and the so-called wilderness. There is a strong cultural history aspect to my book. Um, so I tell stories of the very famous writers who've influenced the modern cults of nature and well-being, like the Wordsworths, uh, Coleridge, Thoreau. Um, whilst also celebrating writers who may not be well known in this context, but whose contributions are you know, just as significant, um, like Beryl Gilroy, uh, who moved to London from uh, Guyana in the 1950s and became involved in, um, uh, she was the first black head teacher in London. She um, brought like nature activities to children who were um, learning in post-war London um, and had like their own experiences of social exclusion and poverty. Um, or Bessie Head, the South African-born author who wrote extensively about the experience of psychosis and colonial trauma, the experience of being a refugee, 
um, but also about the work that she became involved in decolonizing the land through cooperative farming in the deserts of Botswana. So I talk a lot about her fiction um, and also her like life writing um, in my chapter on farms. Uh, because this is a book for a non-academic or perhaps a more than academic readership, it was also important to go to some of the places I was writing about and to experience them firsthand. I didn't go to everywhere I wrote about, but I went to places that I could get to on my bike or on the train. Um, I describe this as a kind of autoethnography meets nature or travel writing, um, which allowed me to test some of the claims about how nature and interventions or landscapes of healing are supposed to work. Um, and also to examine some of my own like my, my own kind of mental health experience and some of my previously unexamined romantic attitudes to the places um, that I rely on to moderate my own emotions. Um, it also allowed me to explore some of the sub-themes that opened up um, as I began researching this topic and the sub-themes and the sub-questions that kind of proliferated as I um, kind of just unpacked there's so so much material there's so many ways of telling the story but focusing on places really helped me pin it down. Uh, so in Water, it's the first chapter, a medium of transformation, I explore the ritual significance of immersion, drawing from myths of metamorphosis um, in healing waters from diverse religious cultures um, and also centered around a trip to the sacred waters of Lourdes. I wanted to better understand how and why water is believed to be transformative and at the same time to contextualize the modern trend for cold water bathing as a mental health treatment. Uh, by looking at some of the disturbing uses of water for purification and punishment in the history of psychiatry, um, and to ask what a more compassionate, uh, more ecological, and perhaps less expectation-heavy encounter with outdoor swimming might achieve now. Uh, in Mountain, I headed to the Cairngorms with a stinking cold to try to experience the trans transcendent joys associated with summits and high places, uh, plot spoiler, I did not get very far. Um, I was interested particularly in the notion of the supply, sublime and what it's supposed to do to the mind by taking us to the limits of ourselves. Um, and also the ways in which the kind of hyper-physical cultures of mountaineering exclude people from feeling welcome in national parks. Um, so this really became a chapter about diversity and inclusion, looking for alternatives to white heteropatriarchal colonial traditions of writing mountains and celebrating uh, disabled, feminist, queer, black and indigenous voices in mountains and outdoor spaces. Uh, Forrest took me to a woodland bathing retreat in Finland. And here I explored the way woods are being used medicinally um, and found that I didn't really get on with forest bathing at all. Uh, this chapter gave me space to reflect on how nature and wellbeing discourse often paints nature as this kind of bright and healing sunny upland space um, and allow me to kind of bring in some of Timothy Morton's thinking around the idea of nature, um, its connection with kind of darkness, complexity, to problematize that I, that kind of binary that opens up when you think of nature as healing um, or as a healthful space. And then that, that question, you know, does being sick suddenly take you outside of nature somehow? Um, looking instead at the darker associations of forests and the eco-gothic and in myth, I wanted to consider how the obligation to relentless happiness in nature wellbeing discourse could end up being oppressive and outlaw a number of difficult emotions from fear to melancholia, grief to rage, which we might want and need to experience and from an in which the forest might be ideally placed to support. Uh, at that point in writing the book, the pandemic struck. 
I was writing my chapter about gardens at the exact moment that people were being ordered to stay indoors. And at the same time, the politics of access to private green space was becoming acutely obvious. I didn't want to write about the pleasure of having a garden at this time. Instead, I looked at more collective and communal ways of extending care for living nature uh, within communities by looking at shared garden spaces, uh, guerrilla gardens, the idea of tending ecological and social relations in my own patch in each East Bristol, which is a city if you don't know it, it's a quite sort of suburban area. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's work provided a real guiding intelligence for this research. And I also became really interested in medicinal foraging and foraging for food, um, using Nicholas Culpepper's guides to wild herbs, um, which helped reflect on you know, why it is so important that medicine is free. Um, I'm getting close to the end of time, so just, just briefly, my work on farms was, my chapter on farms was secretly about work. My chapter on parks was about urban space and the way that developers kind of take over cities and have undue influence on what counts as green space, what counts as nature. Um, I also looked at virtual nature to explore this idea that, um, that there's some forms of kind of encountering nature in a virtual space that are bad. You know, this is often the, the polarization you get in nature and wellbeing work. You know, kids should be outdoors, computer games bad. I wanted to kind of problematize that, but also look at what is problematic about synthesizing nature for wellbeing in kind of immersive spaces that are being used by business now to help workers unwind. Um, and then it ended on this uh, chapter around lost places, the idea of ecological grief, anticipatory mourning, um, and how we can use or kind of turn those difficult emotions into um, spurs for action and hope. So I'll end there. Thank you so much for giving me this space. Thank you for this introduction. Um, that was great to hear about your book. And it looks like, sounds like you've just covered a really large, um, you know, variety of the different places that we go and we encounter nature in. One of the things that I was thinking about with that intro was the relationship then between mental health and physical health and where nature fits in and in people's thinking about that. Um, particularly, uh, I got to thinking about kind of the TB hospitals that get set up everywhere where they're out um, in these kind of countryside park uh, kind of settings. And so I was wondering uh, in your research, if you you know found how people talk about the, the relationship between physical and mental well-being when it comes to nature. Oh, that's a really good question and a, a tricky one because um, there's so many examples, I think. Um, I mean, certainly what's interesting in that kind of um, that history of TB hospitals and hospital design. I, I drew a lot from the um, health historian Claire Hickman in my understanding of this because she, she's a real expert on kind of outdoor environments in hospitals. Um, but certainly the architecture is often quite similar um, between some psychiatric spaces and some of the um, TB hospitals, you know, the idea of bringing light into a hospital, the idea of having like a pavilion set up, um, and, and fresh air, this idea of kind of influences from without um, in kind of more hospitals that are more focused on kind of curing physical ills or respiratory problems. That is 
it's actually quite bound up in the mental as well. You know, there's a kind of physical explanation of why that is good. Um, but then there's also a, an acknowledgement that it, it kind of lifts the patient's spirits as there's kind of almost always a comment around what it does psychologically as well as um, what it does physically. Um, in the design of psychiatric hospitals, which I talk about quite a lot in the Parks chapter, there's this idea of, um, well, certainly this idea of what we call now like rumination and kind of kind of closed off ways of thinking. This idea that if you can kind of get people out of their rooms to either like look at the view or to like access the grounds in some way, that can do good things in terms of um, changing, yeah, changing the way that they um, think and feel about their situation. Um, now, you know, it, it's interesting that like, the nature and wellbeing research that I encountered, you know, often does focus on specifically like stress, low mood, and anxiety but there's also an awareness that a lot of those conditions have physical components as well um, so most of the kind of evidence base that is um, quantitative focus on blood cortisol um, stress hormones um, adrenaline and things like that and there's like an increasing understanding that 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 those hormones that are produced by psychological experience like have an effect on physical health as well they may be detrimental to um, other aspects of physical health so yeah the, these things are often really interlinked um i was wondering then um when you were talking about these different types of of spaces um you know everything from kind of forest to garden uh, to to mountain do you see a difference in the way people talk about nature being a cure when it is how would one say this cultivated, um, domesticated nature, uh, like a farm that you mentioned you have a chapter on, uh, versus something that is seen as wild and uncultivated. Now, whether or not it really is wild and uncultivated in a way is, a, is another discussion, but do, do people make a distinction of what nature can do in those different types? Yeah, definitely. And and that really helped with the structuring of the book to go from like water, um, forests and mountains, which, you know, the, very few like the Kangongs isn't a wild environment, right? It's like very carefully maintained and controlled. So the people own that land. But, you know, a form of nature that is more like wild or more kind of in a wilderness state, as an ecologist might put it, than um, a garden or a city park like the, the structure of the book kind of allowed me to explore that and actually the, put parks to virtual nature in particular um, are about this idea that you can design a space that's like perfectly engineered to create emotion, to change emotion. I mean, this is the idea of like aristocratic landscaping from people like Capability Brown um, and Humphrey Repton who designed the place I work, like a fast by university's campus is like this design ground. And like every path is, is set out in a way that is supposed to make you feel something, you know, you feel wonder, you feel surprise, you know, you feel kind of the, the <laughs> tranquility. Um, so when that was carried over into like hospital grounds, it was supposed to do those things for the patients, when it was carried over to city parks, it was supposed to do that thing for workers and people who live in the city who didn't have access to nature, but were like, you know, working in very kind of unsanitary and unsafe and stressful conditions. Um, so yeah, I became very interested in this idea of like designing 
a perfect space for for well-being and restoration and that's why my chapter on parks is called little well-being machines this idea that you can kind of automate well-being and the problems that that kind of raises around freedom and like design and control of nature um so yeah i think that there is but you know in the medical literature there often isn't that understanding and that's one of the things that frustrated me as like an environmental humanities scholar is like how often nature is just this kind of catch-all term for like almost anything um, and that's why i wanted to kind of bring a bit of precision a bit of distinction a bit of like like landscape history to telling this story to be like well, you know we do feel differently in a river and a mountain versus like a park in the center of the city and to just kind of plop everything into the box nature isn't possibly very helpful for us and probably isn't very helpful for living things either. So on that note, then I was wondering if you could say something more about nature than how you approach it, because I get the impression that, you know, with nature, here you're talking about spaces of various kinds of natural spaces, landscapes, uh, there are environments that, you know, your body has a presence in, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, are there other types of natural encounters that you discuss? I mean, and, and here I'm going to think, thinking about encounters. You could be in a, you know, super urban uh, environment or like space where there's like no, you know, what you would think of as classical nature. Uh, mm -hmm. And you could have an encounter with a bird, for example, that can be very meaningful too. Do you talk about uh, things like this? Yeah, definitely. Um, like Beryl Gilroy, to kind of look back to her work, she's so interesting because she's taking these kids um, in, I think they're like around kind of Camden, like North London, post-war, like a very, like like post-war London at that period was still like bomb sites and like, you know, holes in the ground and collapsed buildings and like not a very great environment to explore. Um, and she like takes these kids out to look at, ponds that have formed in bomb sites um and also to like little sort of scrappy bits of of forest um and some of the you know she describes where these kids are like running around like touching trees for the first time and seeing birds and this one little girl says sparrows ain't birds they're londoners which i love as <laughs> like this idea of this kind of inter or like cross-species solidarity you know this idea that the birds are like londoners as well it's really lovely in this this like community of like working class kids and migrants like trying to form a new kind of sociality based on kind of compassion and empathy um but yeah in the in the virtual nature chapter i describe experiences of like immersive nature um that were designed to or designed for maybe two different functions so like headsets where you kind of go into a green environment that's um been created for for well-being and restoration um which makes makes me feel terribly sick because i have a lot of um issues with travel sickness <laughs> so doing anything 3d like that is not okay um but yeah they're they're based on this idea that you know that it's it's not so much the fact that the thing is alive and you know it to be alive it's like almost an equation that's built out of kind of color and sound and scent and you can kind of trick the brain and make it produce the same well-being effects um it's very very kind of critical of that while also trying to explore like what it is people are trying to like get out with this idea of nature you know what is it about nature that actually is healing is it just our brain is tricked and we just like the color green or is there something like more um significant about relationship about feeling like care and responsibility and like yeah <laughs> those are the kinds of things that, that the book kind of tries to explore 
And I think it's interesting to think about uh you know your comment there about it being green but of course a lot of nature isn't green at all i mean our our mountains here in norway many of them are above tree lines so so i mean what you see what you can associate with and have this kind of grandeur feeling is is you know granite um and you know snow um you know or the desert um which can have you know just these you know dunes with with nothing growing there and yet still be a a definite sense of of uh, awe and nature and re you know relationship. So, I think that's a really good um, point. So, Gerard has a question. Uh, can you all hear me? Yes, yeah. we can. Go ahead. Yeah, I am. Um, this sounds really interesting. I have, I have a comment and a question. Um, I'll say first, I'm completing a book on the history of airborne disease. In the U.S., I'm pretty, I'm pretty, uh, have, a, have a background in hospital design and, and, and that, that sort of thing. And I've also suffered from chronic pain for a long time. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals for like the last 20 years. And one thing um, I'm intrigued about is, A, like whether you think the, pan I think the pandemic is going to basically affect hospital design in the future. I think hospitals are going to become a lot more um, containment oriented, which I don't think is going to lend itself to the types of things which you're talking about, which I think are also very healthy. Um, from personal experience, I've noticed... Um, Psychologists and psychiatrists, like in pain studies, um, tend to differ on, on nature stuff. And the psychiatrists tend to, I think, um, be dismissive. And also, I think the United States are very worried about lawsuits. If they, if they tell you to go out and walk in nature, they're worried if you fall down, you're eventually going to sue the hospital, which it actually sounds funny, but it's not, actually. I think it actually affects like therapeutic design design questions. Um, so, so I guess my, 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 my question is about, about virtual nature that there's, there's a controversy right now a billionaire just donated a bunch a billion dollars to build a, a dormitory out in, in California and it's going to house 5,000 undergraduates and there are no windows the idea is there's going to be a virtual there'll be virtual walls and I think that um, I've noticed in, in hospital design literature people tend to like want to defer to this kind of stuff which I think is really problematic because looking at a picture of a bird and being outside are not me very very similar but but i think like with 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 respect to lawsuits and the pandemic i think things might become more constrained in the future do you have any any thoughts about that yeah i've got loads of thoughts about that it's a really good question and points um on, on the kind of chronic pain um side of things like i i kind of didn't go too much into physical health stuff just because the book was so, so much anyway um but polly atkin is somebody i can really recommend um who works on um, yeah, the, the same kind of work around kind of problematizing nature cures from perspective of people who live with chronic conditions and including chronic pain um, and how, you know, if you live with a chronic condition, and you're told to like get outside and feel well, that you meet a landscape that isn't necessarily accessible to people who live with chronic pain. Um, and also the condition is not, you know, it, it's not going to go away. It's something that one lives with and how one manages it. The, the, just the fact that, you know, people telling you to get outside can be quite... Um, offensive um, um what am i trying to say yeah virtual nature and the design stuff i've heard tell of this like dormitory without windows i find it fascinating and frightening i need to see haven't actually seen pictures of it um but it's definitely something that came up in the virtual nature chapter um or in the research around that of like going to these immersive spaces um where people were trying to for some really good ends to create like virtual nature encounters or kind of simulated nature encounters for people who can't leave hospitals for health reasons. So like, you know, for people for whom that really is kind of the only um, way to have those kinds of experiences. Um, so I went on one 
um, kind of experimental uh, encounter that was like non-visual, which was really interesting to kind of move away from the idea of a picture of a bird and actually think more about other senses like scent and touch um, and, and field recordings as well. Um, and what I found so striking about those was you could quickly tell it wasn't real. You know, you, you, it was it was qualitatively different. It was different in ways that like my body knew. I don't know if my brain will ever catch up with quite how my body knew that it wasn't real. But what was so amazing about it was the, the fact that this experience was led by guides who were kind of theater practitioners who were creating like a performance. They were, they were kind of creating this um, very compassionate, very thoughtful, very creative space. And it was that care and that sense of kind of shared like love and attention and like desire to invoke um, an experience that I actually found very moving, much more so than the bird song, you know, or the um, or even the, the pictures of trees that were in the, the space where we were like waiting to go in, which all felt a bit sort of stagey and a bit crap. But it was the it was the attention and the creativity of the researchers and the practitioners I found very moving. Um, so yeah, when I think about those issues, it's really about the the intentions and the politics of the um, that, that are behind what is being produced. And I think what is so disturbing about that um, dormitory is it's like the ultimate like rationalization, the like the ultimate efficiency of like shoving as many people into an expensive space as possible, with like as little concern for their well-being as possible. That's like equally. Th that is just as offensive as being stuck in that room without a view as like knowing why you're stuck in that room um, and the, the economics of that um, of that situation. I hope that was an answer. I probably could talk about that for a lot longer. But <laughs> oh, that was great. Um, so in in because you're a literature scholar, you're coming at this from literature and you talked some about the different writers that you have. And they're, of course, um, British writers, American writers, and then the the writers who um, have come from colonized countries and and then moved um, to the UK it sounded like um, and so I think Georgiana's question here in the chat is a good one do you think different cultures can perceive nature cure differently um, so thinking about it, European versus Asian um, ideas of the nature cure or the north versus the south um, and so I don't know how much you entered into that since since you were coming at it from a very specific type of literature. Um, but if you see that in in your research. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it's the the great difficulty of the project that, you know, it could be like a life's work. Couldn't it? Um, and I'm sure that the the steps I have made into like stepping outside of my own cultural experience are like inherently going to be small steps because. Um, of the amount of time you know that I would need to devote to it to do it justice but um, yeah in the book I, I kind of draw from uh, Chinese garden history um, obviously Japanese forest bathing and the, the kind of the politics and the practice of forest bathing there um, I look at um, uh, Maori kind of relationships with forests um, I try to draw from um, like, you know, draw from like to the extent of kind of naming and just kind of looking into in the kind of like, brief way that you can um, in a book of this size. Um, but like the significance of um, water ceremonies um, in um, different, um, so I look at like Shinto, I look at Judaism, um, I look at some um, Nigerian indigenous cosmologies. 
Um, and it is, you know, all necessarily kind of small compared to like the richness of the, the um, stories that are really there. But yeah, the, the it certainly was significant and like um, a guiding principle to like not just tell like a Northern European romantic story about nature um, and to look at more kind of cross-cultural um, ways of accounting for this connection, both to like problematize the romantic conception of nature or even the medical conception of nature. Um, and also to like look at what like like other other ways of um, yeah valuing nature like Robin Wall Kimmerer's work her um, indigenous botany is really really important for thinking about gardening um, and yeah I mean if I, I, I kind of am writing this book in the context of the climate crisis and like the urgent need to move beyond the the ways of framing nature and health that we have now so um to to draw from perspectives from the global south and from indigenous nations is like essential to to that project so do you think that they have a different way then of understanding what the nature cure is or what it can be that's that's somehow fundamentally different than western europe I would say even in Western Europe, you don't have to go very far. I mean, I went to North Finland to um, meet researchers um, in, um, please correct me if I mispronounce this name, in Ulu, Aulu, uh, in the north. And I was talking about like going to nature and going to the forest. And they were like, what are you talking about? It's right, like you don't need to go to the forest, it's right there. So like even like in, I, I think that even in Britain, um, compared to other places in Europe, there's like a very different way of relating to nature because of the way that cities are designed, because of like distinct, you know, historical, cultural traditions, um, you know, that there's so much variation. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly looking at different um, relationships between like understandings of health um, and the relationship between like individual health, community health and um, like the health of the land, it looks a little bit like um, Bruce uh, Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, and the way that like in Australian Aboriginal um, uh, thought in religion, um, the health of the land is so integrated with like, the health of the community um, and this kind of relationship um, with, with country. And yeah, that, that's a totally different way of like understanding how health and nature interact that has been completely lost from the sort of North American, North European um, medical paradigm. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a story that like I, stories that I've sort of struggled to tell, but I kind of wanted to bring as, as many voices as I could in um, just to kind of to spark more research for others and for myself as well. So I was wondering about another um, say mode of using nature for health for mental well-being, self-care, you know, because you have these kind of gray and dreary days. If you have like a light cold, you're just sitting at home and you're feeling blah. So one of the things you do then is, of course, you turn on David Attenborough. That's one of our things, right? <laughs> that you know has gotten more and more technologically advanced too, right? Because what you encounter if you have like big, you know, ultra high resolution TV is kind of this hyper nature, um, not just, you know, they, they get the most spectacular shots, but it becomes in a way this, this new form of sublime uh, mm -hmm. even, uh, in, in, in this media representation of nature. 
do you talk about i mean this kind because you talked about virtual nature but you don't you haven't mentioned i think nature documentaries and the i would say understanding the interpretation of nature that you encounter there is like uh in many ways something that's completely unrealistic for most people to to encounter yeah it's i don't really talk about nature documentaries too much um just because i i had to filter so much that there had to be like nature and well-being and this idea of like mental health connecting them um but in terms of like like I think that what you're saying about nature documentaries could also ring true of like certain computer games and I write about computer games quite a lot because yeah they're the things they're like public enemy number one in nature and well-being discourse and they're the things that stop children from enjoying real nature um, and I have a lot of sympathy for that like I'm not a parent but I can understand the the horror of seeing your kid playing computer games for like 15 hours a day and never going outside but at the same time I was one of those kids who played those computer games and like I know that some of the hyper real representations of nature that I saw then I they encouraged me to go out and explore environments like I didn't live near an incredible mountain I didn't swim in like crystal oceans I didn't like have access to a forest I grew up in like the outskirts of London like near the M25 I didn't have those landscapes around but seeing those places like created in me like a real physical urge to, to explore. And I think there's something about the computer game where like you're the little sprite and you can run around <laughs> that is a little bit, yeah, it's maybe a bit different from the um, the documentary where it's like mediated for you and like the, the camera's lens is your eye into the, the place. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, I, I do think that like those forms of representation like create like a, a, a version of beauty that's like unobtainable for most people but then if you know I've been working a lot during the day it gets dark I haven't had the opportunity to go outside I did go outside over the weekend during the daytime and the quality of light was like mesmerizing like just walking around the park you know but the quality of actual daylight when you haven't seen it for a little while is like more stunning and more kind of yeah hyper real than I think anything tv can produce so <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's a, an interesting segue to Mehdi's question um, mm -hmm. about your own body, right? The experience, the, the physicalness of being in the environment and what you're when using your body to walk through a space to, you know, traverse or to go through a space to have some kind of of physical relationship with it. I mean, even if you weren't walking, if you were in a wheelchair, but you're there, there's something about, um, you know, the air on the skin, um, you know, the sunlight, um, feeling the warmth, as well as then, you know, your physical muscles. Um, so do you think that that plays a role in, in this kind of nature cure discourse and healing so that it, it, it needs to be that the person works? in some sense that there's that physical body doing work rather than having technology do it for them yeah it's a really interesting one because it um it's not like it's not a research book but it was kind of like a research methodology right saying i have to experience these things and i have to kind of write through the body as my way in um and my experience as a body will always be shaped by like my particular nexus of privileges and oppressions right like i am a um, middle-class, able-bodied white woman 
Um, so I walk into spaces with some privileges, you know, I'm, I'm kind of invisible in the right way in some spaces, I'm hyper visible in other ways. Um, and, and I particularly write about this in forests um, when I'm walking alone in forests and a woman comes up to me and says, are you scared to be here by yourself? like oh my gosh should I be or no um but you know a lot of women experience fear in forest environments and I you know I certainly do as well um so yeah it, going in through the body allowed me to um kind of track and chart emotions like both in terms of expectations I brought to that space which like you know a, a lot of people do because they're quite widely culturally diffused or kind of widely culturally reinforced um and also to yeah, to understand how certain environments are supposed to work, like to feel the coldness of water on my skin, to like to see what like a landscape that's really wide um, in a mountain environment does to, um, you know, the way that it changes the focus in the eye, like the way that you breathe differently. Um, I felt that that was just really essential to like bring some of these ideas to, to life um, and to get beyond cliche and to get beyond... Um, you know, what we're supposed to feel. Like I said, I found that forest bathing quite disappointing because I really hated having to follow people around. It felt like so counterintuitive. It's like, I just want to walk off in my own direction, please. Um, but that opens up really interesting thinking about, um, you know, the idea that a certain series of things are supposed to happen to us in nature and how like that can kind of close off certain forms of thinking or kind of um, almost automate experiences, which is kind of possibly one of the threads that opened up the way that I read the virtual or like interpreted the virtual nature question, um, you know, what it is about being in a closed environment that's different from being able to explore um, on your own terms. Um, so yeah, I, the question around specifically the end bit, you know, we engage our muscles and sensory organs more actively than we do in environments where labor has been delegated to technology. I think that's a really important one because you know, so much of the idea of what is healing about being in nature is often about autonomy and about like the way that you kind of think and respond in different ways to like stimuli that, you know, you can't control what is so unpredictable, the, the opportunity to experience like otherness um, and virtual environments, I don't think provide that same opportunity on like a sensory level or like an imaginative level either. So the, uh, you know, the beginning of his question had, had framed it as, well, this is an, eth an auto ethnography, right? So, so you, you, as you said, went out and tried to experience those things and those places that you were then going to write about. And this book then is, as you said, appealing to a more than academic audience um, published with Bloomsbury. So I wanted to ask kind of a, a process question for you as an academic, how did you end up coming to that decision with this particular material that it was a, you know, that you were going to publish it with a, a kind of a commercial uh, press of this type and of this type of writing? Because it sounds, I mean, you're kind of on this um, nature writer uh, line, right? Um, so how how did you come to that, and had you had you done it before, or is this your first you know foray into that kind of writing? It's definitely it's my first foray. Um, I've already like I write as a poet, so like I've written some poetry and some like fiction as well, some short stories. But um, yeah, it's so interesting. Like before I wrote this book, I was writing a book about Nan Shepherd, 
Um, and a lot of people said to me, oh, you should write this for a popular audience, she writes for a public audience. I was like, no, because I, what she needs is an academic monograph. Like she needs an academic monograph that's like really rigorously written because there isn't one. Um, so when I came to write this, I, I was kind of guided, like not so much by the idea that like every book should be available in a trade format, although I think they should all be affordable. Um, but yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is like I was driven by like the kind of story I wanted to tell. Um, and very quickly, I like I tried to write like an academic monograph plan that was like, you know, in this chapter, I'll talk about like this really narrow bit of fiction and then I'll like do a really close analysis of this bit of fiction. And I realized I was just cutting so much of the stuff that is what made this an interesting topic for me. I wanted to be able to like jump around and like just grab bits and pieces and just pick up an idea and look at it and then kind of not drop it, but like place it down <laughs> gently afterwards. Um, and you can't get away with that as an academic because everything needs to be kind of so well grounded um, that the difficulty of writing it is coming with an academic sensibility and knowing that I can't just pick something up without having researched it quite heavily beforehand. So every little little comment has to have like a, a, a decent weight of, of research behind it to even let it be made. Um, but yeah, I, I think it really was like a formal thing that I simply couldn't write it in an academic monograph format. Um, but the, you know, the fact that it is a book that I can, that people can see in bookshops and can buy and that, you know, we can, I can talk about these, um, this research in a bigger space than an academic space has been very satisfying as well in ways that I probably hadn't fully appreciated how satisfying it would be. So because of that, um, audience then did you have to change kind of the way you do i assume the apparatus that goes with it so did you do you have kind of do you even use notes uh, you know end notes or are there kind of uh, chapter i don't know bibliographies or, or go to these sources or how does that work i kind of want to very unprofessional sort of wave the book um yeah it was really interesting it's a kind of made up um referencing system that me and my editor kind of worked out between us so like I take the first sentence or the first line if you can see this I take the first line of the sentence where the quote occurs and then like the quote is in or like the, the citation is in there um which took a long time to put together because there's no footnotes um but I think it works I think it works like yeah you I think it works I've <laughs> not tried to use it um in the same way but it was really important that that was in there as well as the bibliography because citational ethics is very important to me as a feminist scholar um, and as a scholar who you know wants to respect people's work and is drawing from a lot of different texts to write this. Um, I think the, the biggest difference was the structure of the storytelling or like framing research as storytelling um, because as a you know, environmental humanity scholar, I would come to this question wanting to say capitalism is, you know, killing us and the planet. But as this is kind of has elements of like nature writing or cultural history in, I would have to kind of get to that point last almost, you know, you'd begin by being in the place and kind of looking at the place and kind of thinking about questions around it and trying to kind of think through the body and think through the experience and then kind of go on the story of, of doing the research and then come to the conclusion, which as an academic would be at the front. And that was the hardest thing was just like flipping the writing around and kind of getting to my idea rather than starting with it. 
So Greg had a question um, about nature in, in this, you know, description that you've given us as a cure, but what about nature as a distress? Um, thinking about global warming and, you know, the visualizations of starving polar bears and of poached elephants or plastic in the ocean or mountaintops disappearing for mining. So mm -hmm. is, is being out in all those natures or, you know, it can be that you're seeing them in media, but it can also be that you're being out in it. Um, can that also do the reverse of a cure? Yeah, totally. That was one of the paradoxes. My sort of big list of critical questions I started with was, isn't it strange that at this moment where um, climate change and like environmental degradation is so visible, like not just visible in like media representations, but visible in the world around us, that, you know, we're being told to go out and like get away from things. And what you're actually doing often is encountering things that shock and you create despair. Um, Yes. So basically, I absolutely do think so. And I think that's something that maybe I wasn't seeing represented in the nature and well-being space when I began researching this. It was very much like nature, bright, sunny, good. You go out to it, you come back, you feel better. Um, I think everybody's got a lot more aware now um, that, you know, we have terminology like ecological grief. We have terminology like climate anxiety, um, which is being taken quite seriously by, you know, not necessarily turned into a diagnosis. Um, and I would really feel bad if it was turned into a diagnosis, but medical charities like the Lancet and British Medical Journal, sorry, medical publications, they're using that terminology and taking it seriously and recognizing that it does frame and shape people's experiences of the out of doors more than it used to. Um, so I'm very interested in that and kind of how we get beyond that, you know, how connections with nature or kind of understanding the reality of what is going on um, and the kind of grief and anxiety that produces how we can kind of reflect on those difficult emotions in a way that doesn't just kind of try to kind of medicate us out of them or suggest that there's something not natural about that you know the, the way that grief and anxiety can be um, you know <laughs> It's kind of like that grief is the price of love feeling, you know, that like if you're not grieving for something, if you don't feel anxious, like, do you really care? Trying to sort of sit with those emotions and hold them and kind of recognize them in each other and then use them as a source of power and a source of anger, possibly, you know, and a source of um, change as well. So I was wondering, because um, when you were describing the, um, the way you changed your writing process and the way you wrote them for a popular audience, I mean, it sounded in a way like very liberating, right? Because you're doing something a different way, um, not as rigid as academic writing can be. But uh, I don't see this as in a way a lowering of standards. It's more mm -hmm. a way of finding different ways to communicate environmental humanities work to new audiences. And I think that is incredibly important uh, to do. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what, what do you take with you from the work with this book into your next project? Ooh, that's a good question because I'm sort of trying to work out what the next project will be. <laughs> it's interesting, like I do think that the, the Nan Shepherd book that I wrote before did kind of free me up to write this book in a way um and like yeah it, it's it was really important not to like drop standards 
um, of research and like of like the quality of ideas. I didn't want to like talk down or write down to my potential readership. But at the same time, like the loosening up of sentences, like the, the shaping stories in a slightly different way and like allowing writing to be like poetic or lyrical or, you know, to go to places that we're like encouraged not to in academic writing so much. Although I do think that is changing a bit. I've seen some really good academic writing recently. I think everybody's kind of loosening up a bit. Um, and why not? Um, yeah, I think it it has like encouraged me to be a bit braver um, and to to really make my point as well, because like to capture um, a readership who isn't like invested in academic writing to the extent that we kind of have to be in the academy, um, you do have to really like just just make your point, just kind of um, and back it up as well. And yeah, it, it's just taught me an awful lot about like directness, um, but at the same time of like allowing there to be pleasure in writing. Um, well, this has been a very pleasurable conversation um, to learn about Everybody Needs Beauty in Search of the Nature Cure, which came out with Bloomsbury in 2021. So thank you, Samantha Walton, um, for talking to us about your book. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.